I got, a, I got a text this morning. It's great up here. We can even text. See you in seven years. We'll keep you in prayer during the tribulation. I don't know what that means. So, uh, Careful what you say to me on Sunday morning. It might wind up in the sermon if I'm preaching. Well, we did. We made it through the projected end of the world or the rapture, whatever was supposed to happen yesterday. Uh, I heard that uh, May 21st, 2011 was exactly 7,000 years after Noah's ark, after the flood. So um, we made it through. I almost didn't write the sermon because I thought, (laughs) why put all that work if we're just going to be in heaven? Uh, But then I remembered it, you know, there's going to be a judgment. I certainly don't want to leave a sermon unfinished. That just would not look good during judgment hour for me. Um, No, actually, I put it together this morning, so I had to realize. Let's pray. Let's just get out of hand. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for corporate worship, week in and week out, that draws us each from our own lives and jobs and experiences um, and builds upon our own personal worship, our personal obedience and devotion to you. And we come together and there is power and grace in worshiping and thanking and learning and praying together. So Lord, bless the message of this text and this sermon Teach us about your covenant and how we live, either in or out of covenant with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine that you are Noah, or one of his sons, or one of their wives. You are taking your first steps off the ark onto the earth after a year on the waters. Uh, I, don't, I don't think you still have that kind of strange motion, am I on the boat still? Because you've been resting on Mount Ararat for a few months. I think you're raring to go, ready to step out. You've survived a year-long flood that came from the hand of a God who destroyed the rest of mankind because of their corruption and violence. Uh, At this point in our text, starting Genesis chapter 9, you know that the animals have been brought on the ark and now released, and they have been charged by God to fill the earth, multiply. But that's about all you know. God has not said a whole lot about what his plans after the flood are at this point. Maybe they were unrecorded, maybe he filled Noah and his family in a lot more, but as we read the scriptures, there should be a sense of, hmm, doubt. Waiting for what, how God will now treat humanity. 
you are going to wonder if God will have very limited patience with humans from now on. I mean, he's just exhibited. He's shown what he can do. And so now is he going to keep a tight rein and flood them again or judge them for their sin? Well, these 17 verses let us know God's heart towards humans in this recreation, which we're reminded of every time it rains, which has been a lot. Let's look at Genesis 9, 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, teem on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So God is defining the future relationship of humans to the earth and to himself. And how does he do this? In the form of a covenant. When my family read this passage in family devotions this week, I had my kids slap the table 
every time I said the word covenant. We do that in my 11th and 12th grade Sunday school class sometimes. It really helps you hear the theme because uh, 2 Corinthians, you have the word comfort in, in the first chapter over and over. And you slap the table and you realize how prevalent it is. And then Paul talks about boasting a bunch in the later chapters. So we slap the table and we remember. And so we, we ended up slapping seven times God mentions his covenant. So what is a covenant? That's not a word we use a ton today. A covenant is a promise, an agreement between two parties. It's a bond that commits people to one another. But a biblical covenant is more than that. I'm going to show off my seminary learning a little bit. I'm sure, Jeff, you're hitting this. Uh, They always gave us background on this, the uh, ancient Near East treaties. In other words, the the lands around Israel in Bible times, they found a lot of evidence of covenants being written, treaties, where a greater power defeated a lesser power and would come and present a covenant, sort of as a peace treaty, as, and as a way of saying, this is the new rules. And guess who got to make those rules? The lesser or the greater king? Yeah, the greater king pretty much had all to say in the terms of that covenant. So in the same way, God sets the terms for how he will deal with his people. A covenant is not a casual bond. It is a life or death oath. Breaking a covenant would call down death upon you. We're going to see that very vividly illustrated when we get to Genesis chapter 12 and God's covenant with Abraham. So I don't want to spoil that, but the covenant is how God deals with his people. There are two major covenants in the Bible. The covenant of works, and it's not exactly called that when it was made, but we see that that was God's relationship to man before the fall. Essentially, it was don't sin or you will die. It's that easy. The covenant of works. You obey me, you're good. You don't, you die. After the fall, after an Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works, we have the covenant of grace. God's new relationship to man after the fall. He could have ended this whole human experiment with Adam and Eve. Oh, they can't obey But God comes in his grace and says, I have a new covenant. And there are five, what we would call sub-covenants or or parts of that covenant of grace. And they're given at different times to different people. And so as we work through Genesis, this is important. As we work through through the Old Testament, this is important stuff. And so we are dealing today with the first covenant. The covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, which is the covenant of preservation. 
We're going to see that as we, as we look at the terms of the covenant. The second one is the Abrahamic covenant, which is a covenant of promise. God promises to bless Abraham with a huge number of descendants, which will then bless all people. Third, the Mosaic covenant. Moses receives the covenant of the law. And God is showing the Israelites how to live as his subjects. Before the the Davidic covenant with King David is the covenant of the kingdom. God promises David that from David's descendants, there will be a ruler, a savior. And finally, the new covenant with Christ. And that's called the covenant of consummation because we have, it's spoken of in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, a few places, besides I have a new covenant. But we don't fully understand it until Christ comes. He is the consummation of all the covenants. He is the consummation of all of redemptive redemptive story, redemptive history. Everything is fulfilled and brought to pass with Christ. But today we we have the covenant with Noah, and we're going to see how we understand the idea of preservation and what God promised with Noah and all of his descendants. Now, he makes this covenant. I hope you heard there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. God says, I'm making this with you, with your family, but also with all of the animals, all of the fish, all living creatures, as well as your descendants. I mean, over and over, God says the covenant is all future generations. Did you catch that in there? Every living creature of all flesh, all flesh on the earth. So that's everyone, everywhere, at all times, us, you, are included in this covenant. Even if you're an atheist, an agnostic, if this is your first time ever setting foot in a church or listening on the internet, this covenant is made with you you might want to learn what it entails. Have you ever been included in a class action lawsuit? From time to time, I'll get a letter that said, if you bought this or that from this company between these dates, you are entitled to a certain amount of money or some other reward that stems from the judgment of this lawsuit. Please contact so-and-so to claim your 83 cents, or whatever it is. I never do because I don't want to be part of a lawsuit that I don't know anything about. But the covenant is like this. If you are a living, breathing creature, you are bound to the stipulations of this covenant, whether you want to be or not. But you are also entitled to its benefits. So you should be very interested in what it says. Could even go home and read it to your dog or your goldfish. It's to them. 
They're entitled and bound by it as well. And I think there's a sense that they know already. The terms of this covenant, the first thing that God establishes with Noah, he says he renews the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And this is the section of the text that most reminds us, I think, of God's original mandate to Adam. In fact, God bookends the first half of this passage, the first seven verses. It's almost like he's saying, I need you to repopulate the earth. You can eat all the animals. Don't drain the blood first. Bring murderers to justice. And by the way, don't forget about making babies. Got to remind them. Got to get that world filled up again. And it's a good thing that Noah's sons were like under 100, unlike Noah, who's over 600 years old, because they got a lot of baby making to do. So let's get this world populated. And so just as people descended from Adam, now all people will be descended from Noah and from his three sons. And as part of this, we see the earth is given to humans to possess and to inhabit. It's no longer a paradise, a garden like it was for Adam and Eve. It's a wilderness. But as Matthew Henry says, It's better than we deserve. Blessed be God, it is not hell. The second part of this covenant is that humanity is given power over all inferior creatures. And this is very similar. Adam was given dominion over the animals, but it's a little different here. Creatures that are useful to us are, are given for food or for service, while creatures who are harmful to us are restrained by their fear of us. If you've ever wondered why National Geographic specials on animals always include the line, this animal will attack if provoked, but it generally stays away from humans. Now you know. They've been given the fear and dread of us for our protection. So our relationship with animals is now characterized by fear and avoidance. God is protecting humans. And God even says that he will demand an accounting of animals that kill humans. Did you catch that in verse 5? He will demand and accounting certainly of other humans that kill humans, but also of animals. And man goes from being a vegetarian to a meat eater, a carnivore here. And we were certainly enjoying and loving that last night, sitting out on the Goodson's deck, eating steaks about that thick. It was a beautiful thing. And some people have pointed out that, you know what, humans might have been eating animals before the flood. There just had not been a divine authorization to do so. We're pretty sure that that man had been allowed to kill animals for sacrifice and for clothing. But in Genesis 1, God had only given plants as food. 
So why is Noah then commanded to not eat the blood of the animals? Perhaps there's health reasons. Uh, Maybe it's alluding to the fact that blood is used in sacrifices and belongs to God. Uh, Some commentators saw this is a very cryptic reference to Christ's redemption and atonement. And that, that may all be so. But I think that the main thing that comes through here is that we are commanded to show a respect for all life. That all living beings are sacred and that reverence might be shown. Not in a weird brother bear kind of thing. But as we show reverence to animals, we show reverence for human beings even greater And so the third part of this is that human beings are made in the image of God. We are God's vice rulers on earth. And we have dignity from that. We are to be protected from animals and from each other. The basis of capital punishment is laid down here. Uh, Some commentators even see the foundation of all of human government here in verse 6. In the sense that man, this is the first time that man is commanded to punish sin. If you have a problem with capital punishment in this country or in this day because of um, you believe the justice system is broken or unfair, I respect that. That's, that's one thing. That's okay. But I don't think, as Bible-affirming Christians, that we can absolutely reject the concept. God doesn't set out how this works here, but he does set down the principle that those who shed men's blood deserve to have their blood shed. Certainly as Israel forms and in Exodus and the the law gives us, gave them the form of government for how that would work and how they were to punish offenders and accidental death and they could go to cities of refuge and there was a lot in the law, in the Pentateuch that you can read. For the church, for Christians, we have Romans 13 where Paul very much says it is God's will that the government executes justice. The government has the power of the sword. We don't. So the biblical mandate is set down here to protect life, not to take it. Man's blood should be protected. I think there's a sense here that man was so lawless and murderous before the flood that God is intent on limiting murder. God wants to make very clear that he will require an accounting, a reckoning, even if the murderer gets away with it. God requires a reckoning. And number four, the terms of the covenant is God's great promise that there will not be another worldwide flood as long as the earth remains. 
We need to notice and understand that this covenant is an unconditional covenant. There are, there's no condition under which God will break that promise. He does not say that if you start eating all these animals with their blood in it, I'm going to go back on my covenant. There's no loophole. And God has already said man will continue to be evil, but God will not change his mind. This does not mean that God will never again destroy things on the earth. He has promised in 2 Peter to bring a cleansing fire at the end of time. Reach, and reaching back to chapter 8, God has decided that all the seasons will remain. He will keep the world running correctly. Day, night, springtime, harvest. We have the seasons to remind us. The earth will continue until the end. So now we get to sort of the second half. Well, we've kind of jumped down into verses 12 through 17. And we see here the sign of the covenant. God gives us signs as visible reminders of covenants and promises. A wedding ring is a very common sign of a covenant, of a promise. It is not the marriage itself, right? But it signifies, it signs that I am married. I am not available for anyone else but my wife to be in a lifelong committed covenant relationship. That is a sign to everyone to realize that. God gives signs with each of the covenants. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. And we'll get to that in Genesis 17. The Mosaic sign, in Exodus, according to Exodus 31, is Sabbath rest. That is the sign that you are following my law if you will rest on the Sabbath day. And finally, what are the visible signs of the new covenant? You all know the water of baptism, the bread and the wine of communion, of the Lord's suppers, the sacraments are signs, visible representation of the Holy Spirit's cleansing and the body and blood of Christ that saves us. So here the sign of the covenant with Noah God states very explicitly is his bow hanging in the clouds, what we would call a rainbow. I think it's interesting. There's the fact that there is a scientific explanation for rainbows, that they are refraction, reflection, and dispersion of the sun's rays against drops of water or mist. The fact that there is that scientific explanation does not mean that God does not cause them to happen every time. He does. We know God is the primary cause of all things. But God sends this rainbow through ordinary means. God's work does not have to be a completely unexplainable phenomenon. 
but he gives meaning to what he causes to happen. He gives it significance. And I wonder what, if we think of rainbows, when you hear that, do you think instrument of war, bow, bow and arrow? We, we, we associate it a lot with rainbows. I think they're, they're pretty, they're beautiful. Um, you think unicorns, little girls' bedrooms, you know, pots of gold, maybe, diversity. All kinds of things have been associated with the rainbow. But John Hartley says that the bow in Hebrew poetry stands for God's aggression. Listen to Psalm 7, 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. But here we see that God is hanging up his bow in the cloud. And it is a sign, it's symbolizing an end to the aggression. That he, God's intention is now to pursue peace. I think it's interesting, you may have caught this as we were reading, that the bow is not just a sign for us. The text says twice that God will remember when the bow is in the clouds, I will remember my everlasting covenant. And if you remember, last week, Dr. Dave said that remembering, please don't think God has so much going on, so many little details of running the universe that he just needs, you know, string around his finger or just, you know, write post-it notes everywhere. God knows all things at all times. And so there is no sense that God is, oh yeah, I remember what I said to Noah. Remembering is acting. And so when God comes to the end of the rain and the bow is in the clouds, God is acting by not flooding us, by not destroying us. He is acting on his covenant. He is fulfilling his half of the covenant. Every time we see a rainbow, we should stop and worship the God who could and should wipe us all out for rebellion and destruction, but has chosen to pursue peace. Do you want peace with God? Let me assure you, you do. We all need peace with God because if we do not have peace with God, we are at war with God. There is no neutrality. There is no saying, well, I'm not on best terms with God, but I'm, you know, he's not out to get me. I'm not out to blaspheme him. There's, yeah, we're just... Peace. No, there's no neutrality. Either you have peace with God or you are his enemy. And he will destroy 
his enemies. He will punish them. If you want peace with God, you cannot draw up your own terms. That is the great delusion of today. I'll find my way to God. I'll pick and choose my path. You cannot draw up your own terms. You must accept his covenant because you are the lesser power, infinitely lesser. You are in no position to be dictating terms to God. Ask Job. Remember Job, all he wanted was an explanation. What's going on? Just tell me something, Lord. What did I do? Why am I being punished? And God says, essentially, who is this that darkens my counsel? I am the one who runs this universe. I owe you no explanation. Now, God still blessed Job. And thank God he has given us an explanation in his holy, inspired, inerrant word where he tells us how he relates to us. Noah's covenant is still in force, as are all of God's covenants. So we can be assured that God will not flood the whole world. But we have no such assurance from Noah's covenant that God will not punish our sin here on earth or after we die. Because God has hung up his bow does not mean that there is no penalty for sin. We need to understand and read and apply all of the covenants as we read. But the one we really need to understand is the new covenant. God says that your sins have earned his wrath. And that will result in eternal separation from him. It's not just Hitler, Bin Laden, the, very, the really bad guys of this world who deserve God's punishment. It's all humanity who are fallen and sinful. They've earned that sentence. But protection from that wrath comes in the form of someone else taking that punishment for us, for our sins. Ultimately, the new covenant is about the cross, the body and blood of Christ being given up for us. Christ taking our sins on himself so that we are perfectly righteous in God's sight. Hebrews 12, 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that word is one of forgiveness for us through his death. I love to spot a rainbow after a storm if we're driving with the family and the rain's just stopped. Well, hey, who sees the rainbow first? And it's a good time, a teachable moment to remind our children of God's promises. 
that he will not flood us. But I love the bread and the wine of communion so much more because it reminds me that my soul, which is the soul of a wicked, selfish rebel, has been redeemed by the death of God's own son who was perfect, the only one who didn't deserve death. And now I am no longer sentenced to condemnation, but to eternal life and all the benefits and glory of God's eternal kingdom. And all those who are thankful that God initiated his covenant of grace with his people said, Amen. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we knew as the rain from the last month to the flooding happened, that we were safe. Lord, thank you that we could count on your word, that you would not end the world with a flood again. But Lord, even greater, we thank you that we can be reminded that our sins will be forgiven in Christ. Lord, thank you that there is a new covenant, a greater covenant that doesn't just protect us from water, that doesn't just protect us from your wrath here, but protects us from your eternal wrath. Lord, and that covenant is not extended to all people. That covenant is extended to your chosen people. Lord, to those who will humble themselves before you, call on your name, Magnify Jesus as Savior and Lord. Lord, thank you for us, for that. Thank you for your gospel. Let it be said of us that we are people who have been forgiven, changed, renewed in a new creation and that we embrace and live that new identity. In Jesus' name, amen. I can't read that. Oh, here we go. Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Amen.